are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. Whilst editing this episode, I found out that a good friend of mine had passed. This episode will now be in tribute to Dave Harrison, a great friend and a great Trekkie. Space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 7. We're going back to Season 3 of the original series, to All Our Yesterdays. In Episode 4 of this season, we covered the Spock and McCoy story, but this episode is dedicated to the Kirk story and what's going on on the other side of the time portal. It occurred to me, going through some of the previous episodes, including Episode 4, uh, that uh, I've given you sort of an account of where some of these series have come into my life, what they actually mean to me, but I didn't actually give you anything for the original series. You thought I would have given it to you in season four, you know, when we had Spock and McCoy. That was our first proper TOS episode, and I could say that I was deliberately doing that because, you know, Captain Kirk is the main character of the show, and therefore I waited for him to come in before I gave you my proper thoughts on the original series. Uh, that's not actually what happened. What actually happened is I completely forgot to say it. So, I'm going to do it here. For me, the original series is just the series that's always been there. It's hard to imagine the world without it. Not just because I'm a Star Trek fan, but because everything permeated the culture. Where people were talking about, you know, beam me up when things were going bad. Uh, some people always wanted to do their little boop and pretend to sort of... Uh, open up a communicator and ask for, you know, assistance from up on high, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, there are elements of the original series that have been so ingrained in our culture that it's kind of hard to escape its influence. So really, there is no way I can talk about my love of Star Trek without thinking of the original series in some way. Now, way back in Season Zero, Episode 2, I talked about how The Next Generation was my first Star Trek. And that's true. That is the one that really got me into the franchise. It's the one that connected me to it because of various characters or stories and events. And so the updated aesthetic and the, the special effects were, to a child when I first watched it, impressive to watch. As opposed to, say, the original series, which looked dated and was different and... Uh, screened of a time that was more for my parents and my grandparents and, and so on. So The Next Generation spoke to me more. But that doesn't mean that I hated the original series. I didn't get turned off by it. At the time, one of my favourite movies as a kid was actually the 1960s George Powell The Time Machine, based on the H.G. Wells book. And that aesthetic, that type of acting, the delivery of your lines and things like that, is exactly the same as uh, the original series, same as uh, The Forbidden Planet and various other films from that time that still give me that nostalgia hit. So Star Trek still has that nostalgic element to me. And the original series was really the first Star Trek I remember watching. 
yes, the next generation is the one that got me into Trek, but Star Trek and the original movies, certainly 1, 2, and 3, the motion picture, Ruff of Khan, and Search for Spock, they were always there. Whether it was... They were always there. Whether it was... Uh, the motion picture, all 16 hours of it on uh, an Easter Monday, uh, or whether it was uh, Wrath of Khan uh, for Christmas, or uh, I think Halloween used to play it because of like the earworm, so it was seen as sort of horrific in some way. There, it was always going to be there. It was always in the back of my mind that it would be something on TV. Same with the original series. It used to get repeats every now and then, and before The Next Generation came to terrestrial here in the uk the bbc did do a recap they sort of replayed all three seasons back to back uh, i think it was every monday at six on the afternoon and they would show all of the episodes to try and get you into the universe so that you were ready for this brand new generation to come but it wasn't just bbc2 it was my dad as well he had uh, recorded various episodes over the years you know he he was a big adopter of sort of early technology. Whenever something new comes in, he was always the first to try and get hold of it. I think he had a, a Betamax at one point, then he had a v, VHS. You know, when cassette tapes first came in, he was the first to get one of those really big uh, players that were everything all uh, put in with all the vinyl on top, then the cassette, then the big radio and the stereo and the system. Uh, and he's always been obsessed with that kind of new technology coming in. So he got those tape players. And then, then he bought the tapes that used to come out commercially. Uh, there were two episodes per tape. I think the VHS ones were the ones he had most of, but I, I think he had a Betamax one, but I, I, it could be my, my, my memory just getting a bit fuzzy. But it wasn't just a VHS front loader. It was actually the top and then push download VHS tapes. Uh, and that memory of placing a, a, a Star Trek tape in, placing it and locking it in position, that crunch as it locked in, uh, is one of the most vivid memories, and it's it's that thing that actually plays into my mind every time I see an original series episode. So there are a set of episodes based on the tapes we had that are always going to be the, the original series to me. Now, some of them are the really big, well-regarded ones, the iconic ones, you know, your Corbomite maneuvers with Balok, uh, with uh, the City on the Edge of Forever, Errand of Mercy, the first Klingon episode... But then there are the episodes that uh, not everybody likes. Your Spock's Brains, your um, uh, Plato's Stepchildren, those sorts of episodes that aren't always as revered. Even though Stepchildren is the one that has that interracial kiss that is the big sort of selling point of how progressive Star Trek as a franchise can be. My love for the original series comes from those VHS tapes, not necessarily the quality of the episodes being produced. So there is a nostalgia element to it. And that is why I place the original series just that little bit higher up, the one that I'll always come to a little bit more than, say, your Voyagers and your Enterprises, but maybe not as much as your Next Generations, your DS9s and your movies. So if I'm imagining sort of a ranking system, that's kind of where I'm placing it, sort of middle of the road, I'll come back to it, but it would really have to be those set episodes that I used to watch on VHS over and above other episodes. Now, I have said that uh, Voyager and Enterprise kind of didn't live up to what I thought they should have been. I think the original series does live up to what it was trying to do. It was trying to offer a fun, bit camp, colourful, 
science fiction hopeful vision for that time the 60s being the political turmoil that they were in it was trying to offer a different way of doing things so the original series for me hits that right note the same way that the next generation was trying to reinvigorate the franchise and i think it, it not only did that it surpassed that expectation deep space nine was trying to be the darker elements you know the the grayer shades uh, the introduction of serialization so it lived up to that as well for me when i'm rating a series in my imaginary head canon and all this sort of thing not to say it's objectively the way it should be but my ranking is based on what was the series designed to do and did it live up to that but anyway that's my personal history with the original series we're coming back to another episode that we've already done before but this time we are seeing a different side of things now at no point in the clips that i'm looking at did they mention an actual time or a year or a specific date in any shape or form so when i'm trying to present history to you this is complete educational guess and an assumption that this alien planet would be developing in sort of the same way as say earth at the same time based on the aesthetic based on the look of the characters the surroundings and even some of the allusions to the cultural beliefs i took this part of this clip and episode to be somewhere in the 1600s looking at the dress i'd say it was a little bit past the elizabethan perhaps into the Stuart era and perhaps probably around the Charles I, Oliver Cromwell, Charles II era. So when I'm presenting the history and I am going to look at the English part of the history of this time because the aesthetic is inherently English and some of the accents of the characters are almost sound British. So there's a range of different Scottish, English, Irish and I'll go more into that once I actually look at this, the clip. I'm going to just look at English history for around this time. So I'm looking at the middle 1600s and I'm going to go around to the 1620s and probably try and end about 1680, uh, just to give me a good sort of 60 year period to look at. Now this period in history is actually very important to me personally uh, because uh, I have a day job. Oh yes, I may be a writer, I'm an author for children's books, I am also a stay-at-home dad during the weekdays, but on the weekends, I'm something else entirely. On the weekends, I work at the historic dockyard at Chatham, here in Kent in the UK. Uh, it's one of the biggest historical sites uh, in the area, uh, part of sort of the Medway area uh, triumvirate of uh, Rochester, Chatham and Gillingham. Huge history there. When I first started working there, uh, as I'm recording this, two years ago, 2018, they were celebrating their 400th anniversary, which places it straight into the 1600s. So there is a lot of my day job, as it were, that is tied to the 1600s. So there is a personal affinity here as well. But let's jump straight in. In 1621, we have Parliament, British Parliament, impeaching Francis Bacon. Uh, the English Lord and Chancellor, uh, on bribery charges. He's fined then £40,000. Now that is an exceptionally large amount of money. We're talking millions if not billions in today's money with conversion rates and so forth. He is then banished by James I. 
So we've got our Stuart King, the king just after uh, Queen Elizabeth. The end of the Tudor line ends with Elizabeth. Then you've got James I, who is the son of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, but starts the Stuart era. We're already starting to see that his grip on power is perhaps being eroded away by uh, ineffective governments and so forth. William Shakespeare is still kicking around, so if we want a famous character, previous times I've done this, we've had Leonardo da Vinci and so forth, Shakespeare is still alive at this point. Uh, He reached really the peak of his career under Elizabeth, but is still writing plays all the way through into James I's reign. Jumping away from England just a little bit, we're going over to France, and we're starting to see the first Huguenot Rebellion. Now, the Huguenots are a religious group who were heavily persecuted under French law. Uh, You had the Catholics and the Huguenots who had an entirely different cultural take on Christianity. They were banished, they were um, ejected from France, many scattered across Europe, and quite a few not only came to England, but came to me just down the road in Rochester historic Rochester and in fact there is a Huguenot uh, museum there as well do give that a look if you're ever in the area see I'm just I should be paid by the Medway Council for this one we're also seeing by 1625 a black death epidemic killing 41,000 people in just London world populations at this time uh, they range uh, different numbers but roughly speaking we're talking Spain and Portugal who've been boosted by all the trade and colonization in the americas are looking at populations in the tens of millions then you've got england on its own five million people which for that time is a huge burst of population but is nothing compared to the germanic countries and by germanic we're saying everything from sort of norway all the way through into the baltic countries as well because germany as an entity doesn't exist as germany as we understand it today so germanic speaking countries They are in the range of 20 million people alive. Uh, It's a huge population explosion. But with that comes great plagues. By 1625, though, James I dies at the age of 58, giving way to Charles I. And in four short years, to solidify his power base, seeing the erosion under James I, seeing the constant back and forth between the Catholic and the Protestant peoples of England, he dissolves Parliament to try and secure his position and gain more power. And this is sort of a a back and forth for a good 10, 11 years or so, when Charles I then starts to step up his own appointed Parliament, the Long Parliament, as it were. He convenes this Long Parliament based on placing people like Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Stafford, in control, being chief advisor, that sort of thing. He's trying to give the glimmer of a democratic country but is entirely under his own will and control. This, as you can imagine, kind of annoys quite a few people. Uh, One man in particular, uh, you've probably never heard of him, Oliver Cromwell, no? The most interesting thing about King Charles I is that he was five foot six inches tall at the start of his reign, but only four foot eight inches tall at the end of it. Because of The man who is warts and all, he starts to rise up and by 1642 
we see the actual first military engagement of the English Civil War, having the year before just seen the Long Parliament try to abolish some of this absolutism that uh, Charles I is trying to indoctrinate. There's a huge back and forth for a good two years. Each side seems to win very small ground everywhere that they go until 1644, by the summer of that year. Then you get the Battle of Marston Moor, where Oliver Cromwell's troops really push into a decisive victory and the, the pendulum starts to swing in favour of this new republic and uh, the, the cavaliers, the, uh, the people loyal to the king are starting to wane in power and influence. The next year we get things like the Battle of Naseby, Cromwell's army again defeats the royalist army, uh, they effectively end the civil war's military phase. And by 1646, you have Charles I completely surrenders. But that doesn't mean that things are over for Charles I. He actually tries to play some of the members of Parliament against each other, kind of a divide and conquer, as he tries to reject their proposals to control armies and, and so forth against each other's uh, power bases. And whilst all of this is looming, you have more black deaths in uh, Europe spreading more towards England at this point. It's sort of slowly creeping across the world, uh, certainly in the developed parts of the world of Europe. And that's a bit of a callback to the point where I am recording this. This is actually the third attempt to try and record this. Uh, currently, we are in the grip of the coronavirus, COVID-19, to sort of date this podcast. Uh, Whatever you are listening to this episode, hopefully in a few years' time, when this is all completely over and past, it's quite interesting to see that we are now reviewing an episode that is possibly set at the same time as one of the most infamous plagues on mankind. Charles I tries to escape up to Scotland, only to have the Scots uh, sell him back to Parliament, but for the princely sum of 400,000 English pounds. He tries to flee several times, including where he tries to get to Carisbrook Castle from the Isle of Wight. He tries to sign various treaties. He's desperate to try and cling on to some sort of power, but it's just not going to work for him. English Parliament officially renounce him in 1648, and by 1649, Charles I is executed. And his son, Charles II, is sent away to mainland Europe, and then eventually comes back the following year to settle in Scotland for the time being. Under this time, Oliver Cromwell enacts all of his edicts to change British society. You have this puritanical approach to uh, laws and governance. You see the abolishment of Christmas, the abolishment of theatre, a change in how the country has governed completely compared to what it was like under monarchy. 1651, Charles II escapes back out to France after William of Orange uh, dies of smallpox, so he sort of has to leave, he doesn't have his political protections anymore. By 1653, however, Oliver Cromwell is proclaimed the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland, and he enacts just horrific acts against local populations, particularly in Ireland. He is a horrific character to really study, and uh, if... In any way, this podcast is uh, going to be positive and, and inspiring. I would urge you to study this part of history. It is fascinating to see the back and forth and what actually happens and how awful a character Cromwell actually is. And yet he is held in quite a high regard in political circles even today because he brought in power for the people and that was his sort of uh, raison d'etre. He is still seen as a monster 
in various other parts of Britain. It might seem odd to see a character who is almost 400 years in our past still so celebrated and reviled at the exact same time. Because of his harsh leadership, by 1658, Parliament actually invites Charles II to come back and restore the monarchy in the Great Restoration. 1659, Oliver Cromwell has already died now and is succeeded as Lord Protector by Richard Cromwell, his son, who is 31 years old at this point, and then he is invited to stand down to create what is called a rump parliament, and then Charles II can reascend to the throne and power. 1660, Charles II returns to London, and he starts to pass various acts to increase commodities coming over from the New World, the colonies, so we're starting to see an influx of new money coming into the government, you're seeing wealth, power, decadence starting to return to English ways. After the harshness of Cromwell, you've now got a very decadent way of life. But as I planted earlier, the Black Death is coming. Britain is seeing a great new restoration, but you've now got the Black Death, which is killing hundreds upon thousands. And with the influx of all this trade, it's coming to English shores. London has its most severe outbreak. By 1665, King Charles is moving the court out of London, so keeping away from uh, the huge swathes of the population. He's social distancing himself. He's self-isolating himself. Uh, again, the fact that I'm recording this whilst the uh, COVID-19 outbreak is occurring, it's interesting to see that this has actually come up at the exact same time. Charles II has founded the Royal Society for the Academy of Sciences, so science and those techniques are being brought in to combat this virulent plague. But actually there's a sort of a twist of fate. You've got 1666, the Great Fire of London, which actually starts to stem some of the plague by destroying buildings, by unfortunately killing some of the populace before they get infected. As a result of the success of science, we are seeing this new enlightenment, the age of enlightenment. So not only are we seeing the restoration of the monarchy, we are not seeing just an influx of new culture and trade, we are now seeing a Britain that is entering a new phase where science is a dominant force, as opposed to the religious aspects that we would have seen under Charles I. Christopher Wren, the great architect, redesigning London as well. By 1675, Christopher Wren has built the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, St Paul's Cathedral in London. Some of the big iconic places from London are all being designed at this point as well. And lastly, but certainly by no means least, during the lockdown, during the Black Plague, we have Sir Isaac Newton, a figure who's propped up a couple of times in Star Trek as well. Uh, he's working on the Principia Mathematica. My name is... Come back with rather party. This action's what they call the monarchy restoration, which naturally. 
Emily was followed by who celebrates for the king? Oh, they said, oh, see, to see, who cares? All say I'm the king. Report back partying. Great London fire was a whopper. In my brain, London City came across. So this king did what was right and proper. Fought the fire, proved I'm more than a bopper. I'm a fire stopper. And I'm going to stop the history at this point. On with the show. We start at timestamp 7 minutes and 52 seconds. There's a fight going on. There's a red-headed woman who's being thrown between these two sort of cavalier-looking uh, soldiers, perhaps. Um, but there is an onlooking crowd who are laughing and jeering at this woman. Kirk just looks on and looks quite confused by the whole situation. We stop there at 8 minutes 0 seconds. We come back at 8 minutes 13 seconds. The laughing is continuing and Kirk starts to intervene. Now at this point Kirk doesn't quite know whether this is time travel or some sort of simulation but you would think that a well-trained Starfleet officer would sort of hold back from trying to intervene even when something as horrific as an action where they seem to be hurting this woman is taking place in front of you. He might be thinking that you know any action he might take would be detrimental to his position but also he is a true Starfleet officer and doesn't want to see an injustice happen so he intervenes uh, I think that's a good summary of Kirk's character that he abhors injustice so he has to intervene and it does mean perhaps breaking things like the Prime Directive the Cavaliers turn on Kirk they start calling him slave where's your master Presumably they're looking at his uniform and seeing that it's so different from theirs that he, these are rags, these aren't uh, uh, the clothes of a gentleman. Uh, a duel breaks out, he gets hold of one of the swords from the Cavaliers and Kirk starts to fight some of them. We get the brilliant original series fight music, um, but it's also played for a bit of laughs because even though he is bashing the sword against uh, the other opponent, you've got him sort of um, swiping it and, and sort of hitting... Uh, the buttocks of his opponent and sort of driving him off, you know, spanking him almost. The crowd then starts to laugh at the Cavaliers. He's turned the table somewhat. We stop at 9 minutes and 5 seconds. Coming back in at 9 minutes 29 seconds, uh, this red-headed lady then starts to talk. And this is one of the problems I have with this clip. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible Irish accent. At least I hope it's an Irish accent. If they were trying to do something else, then it makes it even worse in some respects. There's this heavy hand, is sort of flirting, where she's trying to get on his good graces. You know, he's just helped her, but she's really trying to push it, that she's going to go off with him. There's a heavy implication that she's uh, a prostitute, Lady of the Night. He mentions having to go back to the library, and she has this horrible way of saying, I don't know where library is. And it's, oh, so, so bad. I don't even want to repeat what she says. It's terrible. Um... <laughs> But we end at 10 minutes 18 seconds. At 10 minutes 25 seconds, Kirk has now gone back to where he first came in and he notices there's no portal there, there's no way back to where he was in the library. The redhead is still in tow and she starts to say, oh, you might be wrong in the... Oh, I know, I'm not going to say it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. You might be wrong in the head. And the way she says it, it actually brings to mind uh, another film that I used to enjoy as a kid, uh, the original Adams Family movie uh, that they made. Uh, where it's uh, Dr. Pinterschloss, and I'm bringing them home to you. That that thing, it, it's weirdly Dutch, Germanic, 
become Irish. It's a, such a weird accent. Now, you could maybe write it off that maybe this is an alien accent. It's not strictly Irish. Uh, you know, we haven't gone back to actual the 1600s England, so this isn't an Irish woman. Um, you know, we could maybe give them a benefit of a doubt, but it's so clearly trying to be Irish, it's just awful to watch. We stop at 10 minutes 50 seconds. We come back 10 minutes 53 seconds, and Kirk is starting to hear Bones and Spock. We are now seeing the other side of the argument that we saw in episode 4 of this season. We stop at 10 minutes 54 seconds, coming back at 10 minutes 59 seconds. They are working things out. Go back to episode 4 if you wish. They are starting to work out that uh, the future population of this alien planet have gone back in time to try and save themselves. We stop at 11 minutes and 5 seconds. At 11 minutes 11 seconds we come back and the woman in tow with Kirk can now hear the voices of Bones and Spock. And she starts calling them spirits. And um, Kirk is trying to dissuade that. He says, no, 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 these are, these are my friends. This is absolutely fine. You know, worries. Now, that is a really bad play. If we're establishing that we've time-travelled, and now that she's brought in spirits, you can sort of reasonably infer that there is some sort of superstitious culture based around spirits. If you know anything about British history and maybe world history at this time, if you start talking about spirits, it's not too long before you start getting a bit fearful and maybe talking about witches, and we all know what happens with them. So Kirk saying that these are my friends, probably the worst play he could have done. Maybe if he tried to feign ignorance in front of her and tried to keep it, then what happens later in this scene might not happen. We stop at 11 minutes and 16 seconds. We're only back in for one second, 11 minute 27, and then back out the same second, where Kirk just simply asks Spock, can you get back to the library? And again, we do the exact same thing at 11 minutes 36 seconds, coming in and out at the same second, where he asks Spock to explain. Now we're going to have to go back to episode 4 and sort of remember what exactly was said in between. We come back again at 11 minutes 44 seconds, and Kirk has sort of put it together that... He was looking at a tape in this library, and based on that, that was the era that he has travelled to. So now we have cemented the idea that this is time travel, and that McCoy and Spock were looking at a different time period, and that they crossed together to go there. We come out at 11 minutes 47 seconds. At 12 minutes and 4 seconds, the Cavaliers have returned, and they're looking to arrest Kirk. We come out at 12 minutes 14 seconds. Coming back at 12 minutes 17 seconds, the lead cavalier, who's sort of dressed in brown, so I'm going to call him brown for now, uh, he has this weird Scottish accent. There's a, a Scottish twang to it. And again, it is just the worst accent work I've ever heard. It almost reminds me of a really bad amateur dramatics performance. They're hamming it up. Uh, they accuse him of purse stealing, which was the original charge placed against the woman, which was the reason why the fight was happening in the first place. And Shatner is saying, I have not done what you tried to say. He's now trying to live in this time. He realises his time travelled and he is trying to give perhaps a bit more of an explanation. He should have maybe done that a few minutes earlier when he was talking about spirits, but now he seems to get the point. There's a bit of a scuffle. Kirk is punched and sort of dragged off. We come out at 12 minutes 40 seconds. Coming back at 12 minutes 42 just to see him dragged from the scene and then back out at 12 minutes 46. We don't return until 17 minutes and 42 seconds. 
we're now in a dungeon, a cell. Um, what you would probably expect at the bottom of the Tower of London, and there is some sort of adjudicator, an official in a black robe that is coming into this scene. He is later called the prosecutor. The woman who was with him is in the opposite jail. Kirk is woken up, and Kirk is again trying to play it smart. He's trying to say, you know, I'm not from here. I'm from a foreign island that called Earth, and this prosecutor doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. So for all intents and purposes, this prosecutor is from this time period and doesn't know anything about libraries and what Kirk is talking about. So he's playing it pretty safe here. Kirk tries to plead his case. Uh, he's denying being a... Uh, part of this uh, woman's schemes about purse stealing and things like this and then he notices that when he says the word library the prosecutor has a reaction now we the audience also get an inkling of this in the weirdest cut i have ever seen for this time period you'd almost think that there would be just the music and then you'd see the character sort of turn away from the scene but what actually happens is almost like there's a frozen image and the camera is panning in not on the actor, but is panning in on a frozen image of the actor. It's almost like two steps removed. It's so strange. Go back to this scene and do give this a look. The edit in it is so weird, but it's supposed to tell the audience that he knows what Kirk is talking about, that maybe he actually knows about the library and is perhaps from the future himself. There's another weird edit as well, where Kirk goes from sitting in front of the prosecutor to standing up, to sitting down again. Again, do give it a look, it's very, very strange, but it brings you out of the scene. And it's one of the main problems I have with this part of the episode. The brilliance that I really enjoy with the Spock and McCoy scenes seem to be undermined by the work on this particular part of the story. Um, I kind of feel like this doesn't need to be here. It, it brings you out, it makes you more aware that you are watching a TV show and is probably indicative of why season 3 of TOS isn't as well regarded. It's not getting the care and attention that perhaps it deserved at the time, um, but no one really knew. But because he's mentioned the library, this prosecutor is now trying to help Kirk out. He's trying to say, oh, perhaps you were just an innocent bystander, and he, he is genuinely trying to help Kirk perhaps get out of the jail cell, perhaps return to his own time, or just find another route somewhere that he was caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. Unfortunately, the woman in the other cell has other ideas, and she starts screaming at him, he's a witch! So, clearly, Kirk should have tried to play it a bit dumb early on. Just as Kirk looks to be set free, she calls the jailer, Brown, the cavalier that I mentioned earlier, as a witness. And the jailer says that Kirk did talk to these spirits, and one called him Bones. Um, but now he's gone from having a Scottish accent to a very almost clipped British accent, which is very odd. Again, I'm going to write it off as this is just an alien language, and this is what it comes out as. I also like how this isn't the first time that the nickname Bones hasn't come up as sort of a, a joke or a reference within itself. Uh, I know there are other episodes where that does happen. It is quite nice to know that, that that's still there now. The prosecutor looks scared because of this, because he's starting to realise that if he puts his neck out and protects Kirk, they might say that, well, he's also working with the spirits. Perhaps he's a witch. Perhaps he's taken into this as well. So it immediately turns to fear. And like I said before, when you've got superstition, you tend to have fear not far behind. He starts to feign ignorance. He starts shouting and screaming wildly, and he runs off. 
uh, and we're left with just Kirk and the woman opposite in the other cell and she turns to him and go you'll burn ya and it it's so weird it, it almost sounds like uh, a scene from uh, here in the UK we have a soap opera called EastEnders and it almost sounds East End London ya burn ya burn ya it's, it's very odd we end at 21 minutes and 7 seconds coming back in at 25 minutes 59 seconds and we have something that I've actually kind of missed so far in Star Trek I think we've only have had it once before in the very first episode with the Megans in season 0 but we've got a captain's log entry and I kind of miss this this narrative way of telling the audience what's happened before but also giving us an inkling as to the internal ideas of the character that although we know the actions we know what's actually happened we don't really know what Kirk's thoughts and feelings on the situation actually are and that's why I've always loved the captain's log as a narrative device to tell the audience a little bit more about how they're feeling on the inside it is something that I've actually kind of missed about the latest Star Trek Picard not having log entries we've been left to our own devices to sort of ascertain the internal monologue going on for Picard and several other characters as well I think it might also attribute to why this season so far has come under fire rightly in some areas for its pacing issues because it hasn't had that captain's log to kind of drive the character bit forward and we've had to wait for uh, backwards looking scenes you know flashbacks things like that to explain what they're thinking um, it, does, it hasn't driven the plot forward enough. I think that's one of the few things that I don't like about Star Trek Picard. As far as the series itself, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a brilliant bit of casting, writing, everything about this show. I love it. It's just that pacing issue at the beginning. I think if they'd had things like Captain's Log, perhaps have a Picard's Journal entry where he gives us a bit, bit more about what he's thinking, I think that could have driven it forward a bit faster. But Captain Kirk, in this scene, going back to the episode, is explaining what's already happened, but his feelings on it as well. And we get the lead-in to a daring Kirk escape. I love this trope. Again, it's just like the fight music earlier on, seeing Kirk weasel his way out of jail you know, by the stupidest of ploys. You know, he waits for the waterman to lean a little bit too close to the jail and then grab him and get his keys and, you know... The blocking of it, it, it so fits this time period of making this show. It's so silly, but I love it. It's so it's, it's so nostalgic. It's that member berries. It really does hit you in the right place there. He also gets in with a Kirk food chop to the neck. You know, knocks him out. It's really funny. So it drags the person along just as the prosecutor is coming in. So his escape attempt is thwarted in some respects. But he pretends that he hasn't unlocked the door and holds it too. The prosecutor comes up, he's being very loud and open, saying, you know, you're going to stand trial. He's trying to save his own neck. He's trying to appear to the whoever else is in the dungeon that he isn't an accomplice to Kirk. Kirk is saying there's no such thing as witches, and the prosecutor is saying, you're being blasphemous. And then he's trying to sort of lean in and whisper and say, look, I know what you're trying to do, but you know, help me here. I will bring you to trial, but I will dismiss the evidence. I will help you as much as I possibly can. But he doesn't want to threaten his own position. At this point, Kirk pushes forward on the jail door and the prosecutor realises actually he's already escaped. Kirk holds him, and this is where we start to get the explanation of the Atavacron and what's actually going on. 
we learn that the Atavacron adjusts your nature to fit the time. So we learn a little bit more about how the Atavacron can perhaps negate the aspect of time travel that I thought coming into this podcast would happen a little bit more. There's this notion that if you go back in time, you create a butterfly effect, but it's negated by this Atavacron. Hang on a minute. My superior officer said they were adjusting my body and prepping it for the time machine. But if they didn't know where they were sending me, how did they... What is going on here? Kirk then says that he wasn't actually transformed by the Atavacron. And this now uh, brings in a ticking clock to the story structure. So there's a bit more speed to it. It's picked up its pace a bit more. Because the prosecutor says that if you haven't been adjusted, you can only exist in time for a few hours or so. Otherwise, you will die as well. And we stop at 30 minutes, zero seconds. We come back at 33 minutes, 25 seconds. Kirk and the prosecutor are now out on the street and they are running back to the portal where Kirk first came in. Kirk is feeling his way along the wall. He feels his way around and his hand begins to dematerialize. And there's another thing that I, I, I love about the original series. You know when a special effect is coming up because the, the lighting, the... I don't know, the contrast changes, the, the, the shot alters from one set of lighting to another. Uh, if there are any film students or any you know directors who can get back to me who are listening to this episode, is there a name for that? Like when you can spot that the CGI effect is coming in just beforehand, uh, the, the old way of doing CGI is that they would then sort of change the lighting and the camera and how it looks on screen. Is there like a technical term for that? Because I'd love to find out. Because I always love watching movies and TV from this period and sort of knowing, oh, you know, the CGI is coming up or the, the special effect is about to happen. The FX is about to happen because I would love to find that out. It was always something as a kid I, I like to point out and, and see on the screen. Kirk places his hand through the wall and then he steps through the portal and in slow moo returns back to his own time. And we stop at 34 minutes and 33 seconds. And there you have it. Like I say, this is the third attempt to record this, not just because of coronavirus, but we've had some building work going on in a dimension just next door, and we've had several other things interrupt the recording. So it's my third attempt to do this episode, but we have done it. So we've located our aspect, but now comes continuity. Because there is this discussion of the Atavacron and it adjusting a person to fit that time period, I'm going to say there is no impact on continuity, that it somehow negates the aspect of the butterfly effect. Even though you've physically gone back, there is something that it perhaps alters about reality. Um, perhaps it changes you in some way so that your effect is negated. Perhaps there is almost a temporal prime directive that you go through when you are uh, properly processed through the Atavacron. That means that you can't, say, have children or change things or uh, that you adopt perhaps a life that would have been lost any other way. I, I don't know how it would physically work. Obviously, it's never fully explained. I would love to know if there are other explanations. Uh, this podcast doesn't involve itself with the books and the extended universe, but if there is an explanation, please let me know. But for me, there is no impact on continuity. As far as the importance of the scene, there's really not much to go on. Uh, we've already had episode four where we've seen that the characters go back to their own time as well. They eventually go back. So we just have to assume that 
the reset button gets hit and everything's fine. Alterations. How would I rewrite this scene? I've already mentioned that perhaps Kirk should have been more aware of himself, perhaps he would have played into it, but then that's not Kirk. To me, Kirk is the reckless captain. He's the one who, who jumps in first and then has to deal with the consequences afterwards. So him getting involved in that fight, yeah, I think that fits Kirk. Uh, personally, you know, I would have thought that he would have had a bit more wherewithal, perhaps he would have stood back a bit more, but it fits with Kirk that we know. So if I'm speaking as... But if I'm going to keep the time period and keep it to this, how would I have changed this scene? I probably would have had it just set to one area. Regardless of the, the jail plot and, and bringing all of that in, perhaps just have the Cavaliers uh, sort of standing around Kirk and they're going to do sort of a drumhead trial. They're just going to do a there and then summary of what's going on. They were already judging Kirk based on his clothing. They could have easily brought in the witchcraft aspect or perhaps had a more serious tone and said that he was a slave and that he'd somehow broken away from his master and that this was going to be something as well. Perhaps we could have also had a full-on duel. We could have had a proper fight with the Cavalier. He refuses to kill the Cavalier in some way, but by this point the prosecutor is brought in because he sees this scuffle in the street and then he is brought in. We then have uh, an on-the-spot trial of Kirk whilst this is going on. Perhaps we don't have the prosecutor be someone who knows about the future. I know we're brought in to find out about the Atavacron. I know he's there to explain to the audience what's going on, sort of reveal the mystery as, as such. But what would have been fun to me is have Kirk running back to the point where he first came in and perhaps he plays into the uh, witch aspect after he sort of accidentally places his hand and realizes dematerializes. So then he sort of turns to the crowd and says, you know, actually, I am a witch, and then sort of back steps into the portal. So we've had like this fight scene, we've had a bit more of a, you know, a legal battle between the prosecutor and the cavaliers, and then Kirk, and maybe the lady who's then accusing him of witchcraft because she heard the voices. Uh, and then Kirk, you know, being brash and arrogant, he actually plays into it, has a bit of fun with it, and then just dematerializes. Uh, I think that might have been a bit fun. You know, he's already broken his prime directive by starting and getting involved, so he's just playing into it. He's just playing into the superstitions of the time. And then have the uh, explanation of the Atavacron when Kirk gets back to his normal time, however that might be. Of course, I know what happens, but we could then have another scene in the actual future that explains the Atavacron or have Kirk figure it out as he's standing over the machine, that sort of thing. So that is personally how I would rewrite the scene, perhaps make it a little bit more bombastic, uh, have the action part with Kirk and then have the introspective character changing bit with Spock and Bones to really have a, a duality to the episode. Recommendations. Two Star Trek fans. There are a lot of things in here that I like. There's Kirk Fu chops, there's fight music, there's the nostalgic element of seeing Kirk escape from a jail cell. There's all these things, but there are so many better other episodes for Kirk. If you really want to get into, you know, what is Kirk and all this sort of thing, there's so many other scenes you could come to that actually I don't think I'm going to recommend this to Star Trek fans. It's not the best that it could be. To non-Star Trek fans... 
there's a lot of talk of this Atavacron if you are just watching this scene. Remember, I'm not looking at it in context of the wider Star Trek universe. Just looking at this scene, you've got Atavacrons, you've got these really badly performed accents and characters, and it kind of pushes you out of the scene. It pushed me out of the scene as a Star Trek fan. So to a non-Star Trek fan, I think it's quite difficult to watch. It's one of those elements where, because of the age of the show, it sort of shows through in the performances. So to a non-Star Trek fan, I don't think I could recommend this either. To the godlike beings, how important is this scene? We are seeing the history of another planet. We are getting a bit more scope, but there's really no uh, universe-ending huge stakes at play here. Kirk comes from the future, is in the past, effectively does nothing but find out that he's going to die if he stays there and goes back. The reset button is hit. So to the godlike entities, I don't think that there's enough to keep this in the chronology of things. So... All that remains is to set up the next episode. Join me next time, whenever that might be. As I say, I am recording during the current coronavirus epidemic. So join me next time for Season 1, Episode 8. We are going to Season 5 of The Next Generation to Time's Arrow. This is a two-parter, and in the Netflix edit, it's actually two episodes. But I am going to review them as one. And we are going to start in episode 1, or part 1, of Time's Arrow at 18 minutes 26 seconds. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail, or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram daniel underscore hitch underscore writer there's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the temporal trek page link the show is always going to be free there's no patreon at all but if you wish to financially contribute to the show feel free to find my books by searching me daniel hitch on amazon and we'll catch you in the next time stream.